0: Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the Trydoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. For the opening monologue, it's going to be a bit of a mixed bag with some good stuff and some bad. I'll begin, unfortunately, with the truly horrific, and then make my way to the good stuff at the end. This past Saturday, October 16th, 2021, another cyclist was struck and killed by a hit-and-run driver while out on a training ride preparing for Ironman Arizona. While this is a story that I have heard or had to relate far too many times since I started this podcast, this particular time was significantly more personal because for the first time, I knew the victim. Courtney Waltemeyer was 33 years old when she was left at the side of the road all alone to die. But in life, this amazing woman was never, ever alone. She was a member of my triathlon team, the Cupcake Cartel. And while I didn't know her nearly as well as many others, she had a profound impact on me because that was just the kind of person that she was. Courtney embodied the joy and enthusiasm that all triathletes possess for the sport and for life. I never saw her without a huge smile on her face, Never heard of anyone needing help with pretty much anything that had not already heard from Courtney before they heard from me, and was never surprised to see a comment on any number of my posts on social media from her that was funny, supportive, and warm all at the same time. When we finally met in person at St. George not that long ago, she made my wife and I both feel as though we had known her forever, and she left us feeling as though we couldn't wait to see her again. And now, sadly, that day will never come. And I'm not alone in feeling the way that I do about the impact that Courtney had on me. In the days since her death, the explosion of grief and love for this woman has emanated from around the globe, and it's clear that she will be sorely missed by many, many people. On this show, I have lamented the continued enmity between cyclists and drivers and begged for productive discourse and changes that could reduce the toll that these kinds of incidents continue to have on our community. And yet, the deaths and the numbers of maimed and injured continues to rise unabated. Despite the hard work of friends of this podcast, Trini Willerton, of It Could Be Me, the cyclist lawyer, Megan Hotman, and even attorney Bill Ogden, who has taken up the cause, I am despondent at the lack of meaningful change and the needless death of such a strong and beautiful person as Courtney, among too many others. Although it seems completely hopeless, I urge everyone to continue to advocate, to support causes like it could be me, and to make yourselves heard at local and state levels, agitating for safer streets and harsher penalties for drivers who recklessly endanger cyclists' lives. But above all, stay safe. Ride indoors if that's where you feel safest, and be sure to ride with others outdoors with lights and a camera so that you have the best chance of not becoming another statistic. On the good news side of things, another friend of this podcast, Brian Dunn, who lives in Phoenix, Arizona, had the really wonderful fortitude of connecting me with the race director of Ironman Arizona, Judy Stowers. Judy worked with me to ensure that Courtney was posthumously assigned a bib number for the race, the last one that she was registered for and now one that she will never get to compete in. I can't exactly say why it meant so much for me to have or to be sure that she got that number, but it just did. And when I told others, it seems it resonated with them as well. OK, more good news. My indomitable intern, the TriDoc Podcast's very own Maddie Pesh, has been accepted to medical school, and not just one medical school either, but at least two to date. As her acceptances continue to come in, she will make a decision on where she will be taking her talents next fall, and I'll be sure to share that news with you. For now, I just want to wish her the very best and a very well-deserved huge congratulations. And finally... I want on a personal note to mention that I recently found out that after my third place finish at Ironman Indiana, where originally there were only 26 Kona slots on offer and I was on the outside looking in, they retroactively added 19 slots, and so now I have qualified for the Ironman World Championship in Kona for the second time. This was personally very exciting news, and I wanted to share it. I should add that this retroactive adding of slots applied not just to Muncie, but to all 2022 races that had already been completed, so I was not alone in receiving this kind of good news this week. On the show today, running injuries remain front of mind for many in triathlon, not only because they are the most common cause of injury, but also because they can lead to significant time off of training and racing. Well, recently a new player has entered into the market of running rehabilitation devices, and it's being promoted by none other than Miranda Carfe. The lever movement is a harness that you use while running on the treadmill and promises to allow for running with an injury. How does it work, and does it offer the kinds of benefits that she and the manufacturer suggest that it does? Well, I'm going to look at this as well as similar technology from a better-known company, and that's coming up shortly. Later, I'm joined by my friend and colleague Dr. Tracy Cushing. Tracy has a pretty long history in triathlon and if you've spent any time racing on the Front Range of Colorado, you have definitely come across her smiling persona at some point. Well, the past couple of years have been hard on Tracy as she was diagnosed and then fought a rare type of breast cancer, only to come back and resume her training and racing this season. You're going to hear all about her incredible journey and how triathlon has really motivated her through her darkest hours, and that's just a little bit later on. Before that, I want to take a moment to remind you all once again of the benefits of becoming a Patreon supporter of this podcast. For the price of about a cup of coffee per month, you can get access to all kinds of great interviews available only to my supporters. Right now, there's bonus content in the form of interviews with Simon Marshall, Mark Allen, and Dan Enfield, among a few, along with a talk by yours truly on the science of tapering. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you can get access to all of that right now. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always... Thanks so much in advance, just for considering. Of the three disciplines in triathlon, running is by far the most common cause of injury amongst triathletes, and is frequently also the cause of prolonged time off training. As a result of this, athletes often look for ways to keep their training going in a means to maintain fitness, and even, if at all possible, to keep training for their events if they happen to succumb to some kind of running injury. Now, in order to do this, the injured athlete has to strike somewhat of a fine balance. They need to be able to allow their body the time and the rest needed for healing while still being able to put it under the stresses required to result in building strength and fitness. Recently, Miranda Carfey began posting on her various social media platforms about a new device that she herself had used and is now promoting as a means of helping injured runners continue running without having the wear and tear that running usually entails. Now, it isn't completely clear to me what Carfey's relationship is with Lever Movement, the company whose device she's promoting, but I'm guessing at the very least that she's somewhat sponsored. At any rate, the lever movement package is a $1,000 contraption of steel bars, pulleys, and elastic cords that you set up on your treadmill and attach to some tight-fitting shorts that you wear while running. The way this system works is that by putting an elastic force that pulls you up vertically from the treadmill deck, you can run with up to 45 pounds of your body weight essentially removed. Now, you may have heard of another device that works in a similar fashion, and that device is called the Alter-G. The Alter-G, though, is a much more sophisticated and, unsurprisingly, therefore much more expensive device, but it works very differently, although it uses some ki- somewhat kind of the same principle. Unlike the lever movement, that is a temporary device attached to any treadmill, the Alter-G is a fully self-contained unit that's permanently built around a treadmill. And I'll I'll put a link in the show notes to the AlterG website so you can see what the device looks like, but I'll do my best to try and describe describe it and, and how it works. Essentially, the front end of the unit has a standard treadmill interface along with some extra controls to dial in how much of your body weight you want to run with. There's also an LCD screen for watching TV. Now, running in the Alter-G requires that you first step into a skirt, and that skirt is then zipped into a large, airtight balloon that encloses the entire running deck and pulls up so that it rises to the height of the runner's waist. The Alter-G then inflates this balloon, and the pressure of the air in the balloon works to actually lift the runner off the deck of the treadmill, thereby reducing their body weight. So where the lever device actually has an elastic that pulls you up reducing your body weight, the air pressure in the Alter-G pushes you up, but the end result is the same. You're running with less body weight on the treadmill deck. Now with the Alter-G, by dialing in how much you want to reduce your body weight, the pressure within that balloon will be more or less so that it lifts you up off of the deck more or less. Now, the Alter-G is a very expensive machine and not something that just anyone is going to just buy and put in their basement, but because it has a lot of other uses, it can often be found in gyms and physiotherapy offices pretty ubiquitously now. And a lot of these businesses have found that runners like getting access to this machine, and so they will rent time to their AlterG units to help runners use it, and to be honest, that's actually how I first came across one several years ago. When I was rehabilitating my hip after my surgery for a labral reconstruction, I did a lot of my early running in an Alter-G. Now, on the Lever Movement website, that's the device that CARFE has been advertising, they have a statement that reads that their technology has been studied, quote, extensively and shows benefits, end quote. They also state that a study has been done showing that the lever technology is statistically similar to other technology, in other words, the much more expensive Alter-G. Well, I took a look at the study. The one study that apparently means exclu- you know extensive, a- and that study that they reference had a grand total of three subjects. And the very first slide of that study, which is unpublished, states that given the small number of participants, the results cannot be taken to be generalizable in any way. But that didn't stop Lever from doing exactly that, and from stating on their website that the device has been studied extensively. In addition. The comparison of lever to alter G was actually just a comparison of the data from the three subjects in the lever study to data that had been previously reported in a completely different study on the alter G. Well, you can't really do that because that's not really how science works. To compare two things to each other, you actually have to do the work yourself and ensure that your methods are tightly controlled and that you're doing the same experiment with both devices. So taking data from another study that other people did using whatever methods they were doing and just comparing it to the data that you got doing your methods is not really cool. So I'm going to say that we don't actually know if the lever is anywhere close to the Alter-G and how it works or what it does. But that brings up the more important question. Does this type of training, whether it's with the lever or with the Alter-G, actually benefit injured runners in any appreciable way? So are they able to benefit both from training as well as gain the recovery needed to heal because they are running at a reduced body weight? Well, we looked at the science and here's what we found. First and foremost, I have to begin with the fairly good body of evidence that shows that the Alter-G, at least, does exactly what it says it does in terms of reducing ground force interactions for runners who use it to run with reduced body weight. And this isn't particularly surprising. Basically, the research has shown that when runners use the Alter-G to run with the reduced body weight, they are in fact seeing ground forces that are associated with that reduced running weight. For what it's worth, in that one very small three subjects that one very small three subject study on the lever apparatus, they got similar results as well. So at least as a proof of concept, the lever also appears to reduce ground force by giving runners a weight reduction. Similarly, various studies have shown that with those reductions in ground forces, there are related reductions in contact forces on the bones of the lower limbs as well as decreased contraction forces of the leg muscles all the way up to the glutes. And once again, this makes perfect sense. If you're running with less weight, you need to exert less muscular force to propel yourself forward and will sustain less impact forces to your skeleton upon landing. So this is giving recovery to the bones as well as the tendons and the muscles. And this is, after all, exactly what these devices aim to do. Decrease impact and muscle usage so as to allow for that recovery even though you are actually running. Unfortunately, other biomechanical studies have shown that your gait when running in the Alter-G is changed, and not insignificantly. So, you are running with less weight, you are running with less exertion, but you're not running exactly the same as you run when you have full weight. All right, well, the first part of the equation does seem to have some science to back up the theory that running with one of these anti-gravity devices will allow you to run while exerting a significantly lower physical toll on your body, thus allowing an injured runner to potentially continue to run. But what about the second half of this question? Is running in this way, with less effort and less impact, actually beneficial to fitness and to training? Well, several studies have looked at this question with the Alter-G, though we could find none for the lever. And some of the important findings related to fitness and training quality when running in an Alter-G include the fact that once you exceed a 20% weight reduction, in other words, once you set the machine to reduce your weight by more than 20%, you start to see a significant decrease in the metabolic needs for running and an increase in the time to exhaustion. Again, this isn't terribly hard to understand. If you're exerting yourself less because of a lower body weight, you're going to be metabolically less active and have a longer duration of activity before exhaustion. Put another way by different authors, when running up to 9 miles per hour, a 25% reduction in body weight requires a 3 mile per hour increase in speed to run at the same VO2 when running at full body weight. Now, several authors have found that, similar to increasing running speed, another way to improve training benefits while using weight reduction is to increase the incline of the treadmill, something that can be done with both the Alter-G and the lever. So, it appears that it's possible to get a near-normal training benefit when using these devices, but I think it's fair to ask, is an injured runner going to be able to do these kinds of modifications? For example, if you're injured in some way, how likely is it that you're going to be able to increase your run speed by 3 miles per hour, or to run at a significant incline? Now, it doesn't matter that this can't be done, only that you need to consider that. Also, if you're running on these devices at 20% weight reduction, where your metabolic needs are pretty much equivalent to running with no weight reduction, then the question becomes, do you really need to be running with any rate reduction at all? Now, as I mentioned earlier, the lever is a $1,000 device, and the Alter-G requires some coordination in order to find the location of one and then to be able to rent the time. Well, what happens if you don't have access to either of these things but really want to continue running with reduced weight while injured? Well, you can rest easy because all is not lost if you decide that both of these options seem somewhat unattainable. Because as a triathlete, you already spend a fair amount of time in the pool. And it turns out that deep water running confers many of the same benefits as both of these more complicated and expensive modalities. A couple of pretty good studies have looked at the benefits of deep water running and shown that if done properly, this activity can confer some real training benefits while exposing the body to essentially zero ground forces and allow for maximal recovery. Now, there is a caveat here. And that is that by doing water running correctly takes some practice, and when it's not done right, it tends to be far less productive. The researchers who have looked at this have shown that to do this properly, you need to use some kind of buoyancy device, preferably a flotation belt of some kind, and that doing so reduces the amount of upper body work being done in order to keep yourself afloat and shifts the work to the lower body, which is really what you want. They also showed you need to exert yourself harder when water running in order to get the same benefit as running on land, but that if you can do so, you can achieve similar heart rate and oxygen consumption while activating pretty much the same muscles that you would if you were actually running on land. In the end, water running is a very viable strategy for the injured runner, as it will allow for higher intensity without any stress whatsoever on the skeleton. Neither will you see any stress on the tendons or the muscles that might be injured. But, and I will be the first to admit this, water running can be insanely boring and does require more upper body use than running on land. So where does all of this leave us? Well, clearly both the Alter-G and the lever movement devices offer anti-gravity options for runners who are injured who wish to rehabilitate themselves in a manner that allows them to continue running while decreasing stress to their injured selves. The efficacy of that running is clearly it's going to be fairly significantly diminished, though you can really increase your pace or the incline of the treadmill, well in that case you're not going to see as much of a diminished return. But given injury, this just might not be possible. Now when factoring in the cost and inconvenience of both the Alter G and the lever, deep water running begins to look increasingly attractive, despite its mind-numbing nature. But again, given the fact that waterproof audio devices are now so ubiquitous and you have high-quality podcasts like, say, I don't know, this one to entertain you, well, water running really not be so bad after all and is definitely a very viable alternative. Well, do you have a question about anything I've talked about in this segment or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send it to me at TRI underscore DOC at iCloud.com.
1: This episode of the TriDoc podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman master coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps, and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com.
0: My guest on the podcast is someone I'm very familiar with and someone who has a lot in common with me and this podcast. Dr. Tracy Cushing is an emergency physician at the University of Colorado Health Science Center. She is a New Yorker by birth, a Coloradan by choice. She's a mom, she's a wife, she's a very, very active proponent of the vegan lifestyle. I'm sure we'll get into that at some point. And she has been a triathlete since 2016 having completed four Ironmans and 1370.3s and a bunch of sprints in the intervening time. Unfortunately, in the last year, she's gone through a lot of personal turmoil, which we're going to get to when we uh, chat very brief uh, in a very short time here. Uh, but I want to continue to highlight some of the great things about her. The first of which is that uh, she has a beautiful little daughter and has uh, recently uh, gotten remarried and is extremely happy in her current uh, personal situation. But she's here today to talk about what's gone on for her in the last year, how triathlon has played a huge role in keeping her sane like the rest of us and uh, what uh, is uh, lying in store for her in the future. Tracy, welcome to the TriDoc podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Sankoff. It's great to be
0: here. (laughs) So um, let's start first. I just want to talk about triathlon. So what got you to the sport in the first place?
1: A colleague that you know, uh, Dr. Mike Breyer, um, on his Ironman journey, and I was just chatting with him about it at work, and I remembered—I think I said out loud—140 miles seems like a ridiculous thing to do, and it just seemed—it just seemed incredible. And uh, and I said, but I could probably do something a little shorter. And running was starting to take a toll on my body as I was getting older, and so I thought, well, biking and swimming would be a nice addition to running and. Signed myself up and I did the Boulder Peak in 2014. That was really my first triathlon, but it was kind of a kind of a mess. And I finished and I loved it and I got hooked, but uh, I wouldn't say I was well prepared. I would say my first real try was in 2016.
0: It's really interesting. you know. When I talk to people who get into triathlon, there seems to be like two groups of people. There's the people who do it once and just are like, that was it. I'm satisfied. I'm done. And then there's people like you and me who do it the first time and just get absolutely hooked and just can't wait to do another one. And it really becomes a lifestyle and something they keep doing. And And clearly for you, that has been the case. We have seen each other on the course many times and you have always got The hugest smile, you are always enjoying yourself. And I love that about you when you are racing, because it doesn't matter how the day is going, you are always making the most of it. Um, how do you how do you like bring that to this sport? Because this sport is full of ups and downs, and yet you always seem to maintain that really sunny disposition and that great attitude.
1: I used to have really big problems being a bundle of nerves on race day and for me, triathlon and the lifestyle was really about the training, and I really enjoyed the discipline and the regimen of training. And I really didn't like racing, um, and I really had to work hard on getting my mind frame switched, such that I wasn't feeling stressed out, but came to view racing as basically a privilege and a joy. And if I wasn't enjoying it, then I shouldn't be out there doing it because no one was forcing me to be there, and. Um, and once I was able to kind of change my mind frame that way, I just, and I'm competitive with myself. I try to beat my own times, but I'm not really competitive with other people out there. And I'm just there really to have fun and um, just to be healthy and just to know that I can finish the distance is, is really enough. I mean, I definitely try to improve all the time, but I'm, I'm satisfied actually just being out there and, and trying to have fun.
0: It's a great attitude. And I, I, like I said, I love that about you. And it's something that you, you really need to teach everybody else <laughs> because so many people, I think I listen, I was the same. I, I, I used to come home after races and be almost angry at my performance. And my wife one day was like, why are you doing this? If it's making you angry. And and she was absolutely right. And, and, you know, as a very competitive person, I had to sort of sit myself down and be like, what am I doing? Like, you know, I, I love the training like you do. I love the competitions unless I'm actually like putting in the kind of training where I can consider myself to be competitive in my age group, I have nothing to be angry about. And once I did that and kind of put perspective on the whole thing, like you, I think I always enjoy myself. And, um, although recently at Boulder, you caught me at a bad moment. I still enjoyed the day. And and once it was in perspective, uh, we, we, you know, I'm always happy. And it, it always makes me happy when I see people like you out there who are just loving every moment and always saying hi and always smiling. It's great. So I really appreciate you. And I wanted you to know that. Um, Well, what was sort of like some of the seminal moments in your triathlon career? Because I know you you've done a lot of races and I know you've had success and, and it's been really interesting to watch you go from a newbie to really having some of those successes. So what are some of the highlights that, you know, you think back on and are like some of the real, kind of moments in your triathlon career, which is still ongoing, that, uh, you kind of look back and think, wow, those were really big moments for me.
1: Um, the f- first time I raced with my now husband was Timberman 70.3 in 2016, the last time it existed before this year. Um, and so that was the first time I had ever packed my bike, traveled for a race, like had any idea that that even existed. And, we saw each other on the run course and we just embraced. And this group of spectators just burst into cheers. And it was just this incredible moment. And it was just so lovely and fun. Um, That was a really high moment. I think another high moment was crossing the finish line with my husband at Ironman Arizona. We caught up with each other on the run and we just ran together and and we crossed the finish line together. That was a big deal. I crashed at Ironman Florida my first fall. Um, I had a bike crash and I like tore off a bunch of my skin and I was pretty injured. Um, And I had a real like moment with myself where I was like, you need to make a choice right now if you're going to get back on your bike and you're going to finish this thing. And I did. And I was really proud of myself for doing that. Um, And I think Ironman Boulder in 2018 was probably the hardest day of my life. Um, That those hundred degree temperatures, it just was so brutal and the mental like energy and my husband DNF, he quit after like eight miles of the run. And he was like, I'll see you in town. I'm done. And knowing he wasn't going to be out there was so hard. Um, and so I'm, I'm proud of myself for finishing that day because I really just didn't want to. I really just did
0: not. Yeah, I to. that was a horrible day. And But the thing is, again, I saw you out there on the course and you did not betray any of that because you looked like your typical self and you actually lifted me. So, I, you know, thank you. <laughs> all right. So all of that brings us to really a, a big reason why I wanted to have you here today. And that is uh, what happened to you this past year. So why don't you tell us in your own words, um, you know, the story of this past year.
1: Okay. Um, So I I would say, first off, working on the front lines of COVID um, was pretty rewarding, actually. I had a good year and I felt really good in 2020 and uh, kind of enjoyed not commuting for other things and and was actually having a pretty good year despite the world sort of imploding. Um, And then kind of in November of 2020, I... Of felt a lump in my breast, and the doctor in me like got a little nauseous and was like, Oh, ooh, that's not right. But the patient in me said, Oh, I'm sure it's nothing, I'll just wait a couple months and I'm sure it'll go away and it'll be fine. And I've had normal mammograms every year since I was 40, so I'm sure it's fine. Um, and then in, in January, I did a really hard workout, and then I got in the sauna. And I laid down and I could see like dimpling in my breast area where the lump was. And I knew that it was bad. Um, so I got myself in for an ultrasound and a biopsy. And at the end of January, I was diagnosed with um, invasive lobular breast cancer, which is the rarer of the breast cancer kinds. And, uh, it was a 3.4 centimeter tumor, um, which is pretty big in a lady who has pretty, who had pretty small boobs. Um, so, um, and then from January onward, it's just been a whirlwind of diagnoses, treatment options, surgeries. Um, and the whole nine, I opted for a double mastectomy, uh, which I had in March with no reconstruction. And that's a whole other, story. Um, and then I opted for surgical menopause in April because I didn't want to take drugs to put me into menopause. I'm 45 and I was knocking on the door anyway. And I figured it may as well be really, really sure that I have no more estrogen left since my tumor was estrogen positive. And uh, so went into menopause mid-April, gave up my plans for Iron Man Coeur d'Alene shortly thereafter and which was uh, another
0: hundred plus degree day so maybe you know not a bad thing
1: I don't feel terrible about missing that one that's for sure and uh, so now I take a, a drug called letrozole that I'll be on for seven to ten years to hopefully prevent my cancer from coming back
0: So let's just back up just a little bit for some of the listeners who probably aren't going to be savvy with a lot of the stuff you just said. So uh, breast cancer, the most common types of breast cancer are either adeno or ductal. uh, And those are the ones that most people are familiar with. Um, They tend to be fairly aggressive, but are pretty treatable these days. And then you mentioned the genes uh, the BRCA gene is something that a lot of people will have heard of. That's a familial one. And when there's a BRCA positive, it means that it's very aggressive and will often appear in other organs and therefore mandates removal of the ovaries as well as the other breast. Now you had a cancer that, as you said already, was a fairly rare one, which is lobular breast cancer. I'm not an oncologist myself. And so I don't even know much about that one. So could you tell us a little bit uh, in terms of lobular breast cancer, in terms of its prognosis uh, globally, not, not your prognosis, but just global prognosis, and then also um the standard treatments? Is it standard to have removal of the ovaries, et cetera?
1: Sure. So their basic anatomy of, of the breast, you have ducts that carry milk to the nipple when you have a baby and the milk is formed in lobules. And so the types of cells that make milk can lead to lobular breast cancer, just like the ductal, as you mentioned, comes from the ductal cells. So typically lobular is associated with pregnancy. Um, I personally went through a change where I went from like, I was a B cup before pregnancy. I was almost an E cup during pregnancy. So my breasts underwent incredible hormonal changes during pregnancy, which probably contributed to my developing lobular breast cancer. Um, And that type, unfortunately, as I mentioned, I had normal mammograms every year since the age of 40 Because it doesn't tend to calcify, which are the things that you can see on a mammogram that are abnormal, and so it doesn't show up on a mammogram. And so despite doing all the good screening, I was lucky enough that my breasts were small enough that I could feel the lump myself because it was completely undetectable on a routine Mammogram. Um, And because of that, unfortunately, lobular cancers tend to present later because they're missed on screening mammograms. So I was lucky to have found mine when it appears not to have spread outside of my breast, um, which is great. The crappy thing about lobular is that it tends to recur later than ductal. So my window of Surveillance and anxiety is 15 years instead of 10. Um, And it does tend to come back in the other breast as well, which ductile doesn't seem to do. So for me, um, I had a big tumor in a small breast. I had a chance of it coming back on the other side. And one thing my medical oncologist said that really struck with me was she said the women that she sees that are most unhappy with their outcomes, it's because of asymmetry. So if you have only one breast, it's really hard to dress for that. If you have one native breast and one reconstructed breast, they can't really possibly ever look alike because a natural breast is going to sag over time and a fake one won't. Um, And so I just said, look, just, I'm, I'm good. I'm at peace with it. Take them, take them both. And, uh, and that's, And that was my choice. Um,
0: Can I ask, since you've had the double mastectomy, is the surveillance for recurrence elsewhere in the body or is it because there may still be some residual tissue?
1: It's for elsewhere in the body. Okay. So I no longer get mammograms. I don't get MRIs of my chest or anything. I just get basically exams of my chest wall for recurrence and then CT, CAT scans of everything else to look for. for Right.
0: And I mentioned earlier that Dr. Cushing and I, Tracy and I have, have a lot in common. And and this is the other thing we have in common. We both have a personal uh, attachment and history with cancer. Uh, You know, mine with my daughter, Lauren, and obviously Tracy, much more personal in in that it's within herself. Um, Just continuing with what you were telling us, the need to remove the ovaries, was that just because your tumor was estrogen positive and you didn't want to take drugs? It's not, that's not because there's a risk of ovarian cancer.
1: Correct. So I had my genetics studied as well. I have no BRCA mutation. I had none of the mutations associated with breast cancer and I have no family history. So I had pretty much no risk factors for breast cancer and we can just call it really bad luck. But because lobular tumors are associated with usually hormones, mine was almost hundred percent estrogen positive, meaning that my tumor cells loved estrogen and that makes them grow. And so in order to prevent rogue cells that have spread from turning into tumors, you have to block estrogen production. And my choices were take drugs to suppress ovarian, my ovaries from making estrogen or just get them taken out and be sure that I wasn't making any more estrogen and the drugs don't suppress it hundred percent. And for younger women than myself who might want to have children after treatment, that's certainly a really good option. But for me, I was done having kids. I was, again, as I said, close to menopause anyway, and it was the most surefire way to be done with producing estrogen. So
0: So, um, now, you know, I mean, you you've been very public about how training and triathlon really helped you in terms of your mental state in going through this treatment. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. um, I would say starting from the day of my diagnosis, um, I immediately got back. I got back in the pool and I started swimming and I spent the six weeks that I had before my mastectomy building my upper body strength and my core strength like I had never done before because I knew going into that surgery, I was going to need that. Um, and that it would help my recovery afterwards if I was, was in shape beforehand. So I really focused on my shoulders and my upper body and my range of motion and all the things that I knew would be affected by the mastectomy. Um, and then I got a really crappy used treadmills from somebody in Boulder. And the day after my mastectomy, I walked a mile. And the day after that, I walked a mile and a half. And the day after that, I walked two miles and every single day, I walked no matter what, no matter how crappy I felt, no matter what. And five weeks later, I ran a 5K um, and I just never stopped moving. And I think even though in my mind at that time I was devastated, I didn't think I'd race at all this year. I didn't know what was on the table. I wasn't sure if I would need chemo at that point. I just kept my body moving every single day. And it really made I think a huge difference, and I never took pain medicine. I was back in the pool as soon as my my drains came out after surgery, um, and I bounced back really quickly. The menopause piece has been a little bit harder to bounce back from because um, that's not a surgery to bounce back from. That's a new a new life phase or cycle, if you will, and uh, and that's that's a different ball game. But triathlon really just sent me on this journey from a healthy place and helped me recover, um, back to where I am now. And my 70.3 in Boulder was two minutes within my PR, my last Boulder 70.3. So I'm pretty much back to where I was.
0: That's amazing. Uh, I want to get to both of those things in a second, the menopause on your Boulder race, but, um, just this idea that triathlon set you up for a healthy recovery and really, you know, almost imbued you with this mindset. I almost wonder if it's a two way street though, because you've succeeded in triathlon because you had the right mindset. And so because of that, it's been a really good complimentary kind of, you know, back and forth. Um, But I I think that's a really important point. You know, I've talked on this podcast before about, you know, mental, preparation and mental attitude towards training and racing and, and how a lot of that translates really nicely to the things that we encounter in life. And, uh, I think you've just expressed that really, really nicely. And, um, it's a great illustration of how, the things that we do in training and racing really can translate to our personal life when we face those kinds of challenges. So, uh, you know, kudos to you for that. Um, this idea of, of, you know, something I've been wanting to cover for a very long time. And I'm, I I continue to try and find the right person to talk to about it is, is this notion of the, the difficulties for the perimenopausal and postmenopausal athlete. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you, you went through it, like, most women go through it over a period of, you know, maybe six months to a year. You went no today to tomorrow. So, so tell us what that's been like.
1: I mean, I, I think the abrupt onset at least gave me, at least I knew it was coming and I knew exactly what it was. I think for a lot of women, there's this kind of vague multi-year period where they just don't quite feel right. Their training isn't going as well. They're not building muscle as easily as they had before and they don't necessarily ping it towards, Oh, here comes menopause. Um, so for me, at least I knew, Hey, here it is. And I, I had my first really bad hot flash probably like two days after getting my ovaries out. (laughs) And, um, that's been night sweats and hot flashes have been pretty terrible. Uh, and, I'm definitely a little more fatigued after workouts than I was before. And I could use a little more sleep, but it's disrupting my sleep. And so that cycle has been a little hard to deal with, not to mention being a night shift worker on top of that. And so for me, the the difficulty has been sleep. Um,
0: Is your ability to actually sustain the workouts, especially the intense ones, has that been affected by that?
1: apparently not. Like my FTP went up by about 10 Watts in the last six months. And um, yeah, I can, as long as I'm well rested and focused on that, I can get through the workouts. As a, So it's as
0: a sleep, sleep issue more than anything else. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay.
1: But I do notice that my body seems a little bit softer than it did before. Apparently sarcopenia or muscle wasting is not uncommon after menopause and it's harder to keep muscle on. Um, and so I've had to focus a little more on lifting weights, which I didn't used to really care about or do much of. And, uh, I need to do that a little more, um, and a little less aerobic. And, and for me as well, and for all, all women, osteoporosis is a big fear and a big risk. Um, estrogen is preventative against that. And so once you stop that, um, you're at a high risk for osteoporosis and fractures. And I'm petrified, I'm going to fall off my bike and break into a million pieces. (laughs) Um, So I'm trying to be very diligent about calcium and vitamin D. And I'm also getting infusions every six months of a, a bisphosphonate drug to protect my bones. So...
0: So uh, this, you know, you, you've dispelled a couple of things that I think uh, a lot of athletes keep in the back of their mind, which is, you know, Oh, if I'm sick, I can't stop training or I can't take time off training because I'm going to lose so much. And I'm never going to get back to where I was, especially older athletes. And, and yet here you are going through chemotherapy, surgery, all of these things being off for a prolonged period of time and yet able to bounce back. And as you said, perform in Boulder almost as well as your PR. So what do you say to athletes who say, you know, I, I I can't take a rest day or, you know, I can't, I can't take any time off when I'm sick. I mean, what do you, what do you say to that?
1: I mean, I, I will say, I understand that because I, like I said, I didn't really take a day off. I jumped on that treadmill the day after surgery and I started walking. It just looks different. I just, you know, I stayed active every day. It just had to look a little bit different than it was before. Um, And I just had to be okay with that. And recognizing that for a few weeks or months, things weren't going to quite look the same. The first pool workout I had after my mastectomy, I cried. It was so humbling. It was like I had never swam before. I was like flopping around. I didn't know where my arms or my body was in the pool. And it felt terrible. And I cried because I thought, oh my gosh, all my hard work, it's gone. And, and that was in March and, or April by then. And, and now it's August and I'm really back to where I was. So I think as we get older and as we undergo things like sickness or illness or other things, your body needs time to recharge. You won't, you will lose fitness and hurt yourself if you overtrain Undereat and undersleep, and so you just have to be sensitive to those things, particularly as we age, and sleep and food become more important than a really hard workout sometimes.
0: Excellent, I, I that couldn't actually. I have said it pretty much like that, but you said it probably significantly better than I ever have. So good for you. Um, you know, Tracy. I, something I wanted to ask you about was because I, I look at what you're doing. I look at like, frankly, I look at what Lauren's doing, coming back from her cancer similarly and doing like just great things. And, you know, part of me wants to say it's really inspirational, but at the same time, I have had athletes who are physically challenged, uh, Laurel Graham, Liz McTiernan have both been on this podcast before, and I've spoken to them about this and they both told me that they, they do, they really find being inspirational to be somewhat abhorrent to them. They don't like that because it, as far as physically challenged athletes go, they feel that they're doing exactly what you know um, able-bodied athletes are doing and they shouldn't be considered an inspiration because they're doing the same thing as everybody else is. I'm curious as a cancer survivor, are you okay with this concept that what you're doing is inspirational or would you rather... It just be, no, this is just me doing me and, and, you know, not everybody should aspire because not everybody's going to be able to, to do the same. Uh, How do you sort of, you know, process that?
1: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question for me. I have really embraced or tried to embrace being inspirational and, and whether it's triathlon, whether it's, you know, hiking a long trail, whether it's biking across America, you know, whatever your, whatever keeps you going every day to get back to where you were should be the goal for every, every athlete, but especially someone who's had a setback, whether it's a physical or, or other type of illness. And I think that to show other people that you can get back to where you were before, whatever your baseline was and that they can do it too is really inspirational, especially something like breast cancer that just takes so much, right. It wasn't, I didn't just lose my breasts. I lost my ovaries. I lost my middle age. I lost my estrogen. um, I lost a lot of things. And I think the fact that I kept doing what I love was inspirational to me, even like i felt great that I could do those things. And so I want other, you know, especially cancer survivors out there to know that they can be back to doing whatever their inspiration is as well. And I've met some incredible survivors out there too, which is really cool to see. Um, and so that that's, that's, awesome. been, that's
0: been me. Well, you're an inspiration to me. That's for sure. I, 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 like I said, can't say it enough. Love seeing you out there and I look forward to seeing you again. What, what's next for you?
1: Uh, I'm, Relaying the Harvest Moon up here on September 11th, uh, and then I'm racing worlds in St. George. Oh, then, great!
0: So I'll see you out there. That's exciting. Yes. Well, they condensed and, uh, it to one day, so we'll be uh, out there together. Great.
1: And then I have Cozumel six days later, uh, the 70.3. So this will be exciting. I've never done back-to-back 70.3s, um, so it'll be it'll be interesting. St. George is just going to be strictly for fun and for the experience. And, uh, and then hopefully Cozumel will be a a more intense. I I don't want
0: to, I don't want to dash your, your enthusiasm, but that run course, not really fun, but, but everything else about the day is going to be pretty fun.
1: (laughs) You know what? I'm okay walking. Like I'm really okay with that. I have come to a Zen place with triathlon where like, It's about the experience. I'm going to enjoy those red rocks. And
0: it is beautiful. Honestly, it's a magnificent course. You're going to love it. It's really nice out there. Um, Now, since you've been back, I've seen you on the podium several times. So let's hear it. I want to hear what you've done because, you know, not at the 70.3 level, but at some local races here, you've done very well. So let me hear what you've done, Miss Cancer Survivor, just back from chemotherapy and then surgery.
1: Um, I took second place in my age group at, uh, the sunrise sprint,
0: which is a big race,
1: which is a big race. I think I also took second at the Colorado tri sprint. Um, and I took second at outdoor divas, uh, and at tri boulder in the sprint. So I seem to like second place on the podium.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Well, uh, I love hearing all of that. Uh, I love hearing your story and love hearing that you are well. Uh, and uh, we will continue to follow your story. I have uh, Tracy's links uh, to her Instagram where you can hear, you could see all uh, what she's doing to crush cancer. And uh, that will be in the show notes. Tracy Cushing, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast for this uh, really entertaining conversation and uh, very personal. I really appreciate uh, you sharing all of this.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking an interest. I know you have a personal interest in this subject, unfortunately, but uh, it's uh, it's really good to be here. I appreciate it.
0: Now, obviously, that interview was recorded some time ago. I could tell you that Tracy successfully completed not only the World Championships, but also the 70.3 in Cozumel, where she had an outstanding time finishing 14th in her age group. And that's it for another episode. The Tridoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern and soon to be medical student, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes, at TridocPodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit trydoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Trydoc podcast, Facebook page, Doc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel, where you'll find a video version of the interview that I had with Dr. Tracy Cushing on this segment. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Tridoc podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll go to visit and give small independent bands a chance. The Tri-Doc podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.